This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Daniel Wildcat is a renowned scholar and author and an advocate of indigenous science. He's a Yuchi member of the Muscogee Nation and a Haskell Indian Nations University professor whose written works can be found on the shelf next to those by Vine Deloria and Suzanne Schoen Harjo. His newest book builds on what he calls indigenuity that can inform the world's ecological threats. Dr. Daniel Wildcat is our January Native in the Spotlight. We're back after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Rapid City-based Native Women's Health Clinic has seen a significant drop in patients since April of last year. The clinic is contracted to provide services for pregnant Native women. South Dakota Public Broadcasting's Lee Strubinger reports. According to a healthcare program review by Indian Health Service obtained by SDPB, Native Women's Health Clinic had about 4,800 visits in 2021. It saw an over 50% reduction in visits in 2022. Since last April, the number of visits has been zero due to a lack of providers. That report came out last June. The Oglala Sioux Tribe holds a contract to operate the clinic through the Indian Self-Determination Act. SDPB asked OST President Frank Stark comes out whether the clinic has seen any patients since April of last year. Right now, due to a lack of funding uh, in, the, in these programs, it's a tough deal. It's a tough deal. So uh, we're addressing that, uh, and hopefully we can uh, better that program and fit the needs of, uh, of our people and the staff. According to the most recent agreement between OST and IHS, the tribe receives over $1.5 million to run the Native Women's Health Care Program. The June IHS report says the clinic has not fulfilled its contractual obligations to provide comprehensive women's health services, resulting in fragmented prenatal care which has been felt by patients and medical providers in Rapid City. Patients are referred to either the Black Hills Pregnancy Center or Oyate Health Center. The clinic, which is run by OST, is located in a wing of the old Susan building, which is managed by Oyate Health Center a separate tribal entity that provides health care for Native Americans. Star Comes Out says talk is on the table about letting Oyate Health take over the program. Um, it's, it's on the table, and uh, it has to go through tribal council. I'm Lee Strubinger in Rapid City. Nikolsky School on Umnak Island in Alaska plans to reopen for students next school year after being closed for more than a decade. The Aleutian Region School District made the decision to reopen the school at a special meeting last week. As KUCB's Sophia Stewart-Rossi reports, the school expects to have enough students to qualify for state funding. Umnak Island families with at least 10 school-age children are committing to attend the public school next year, reaching the minimum student count for state funding. School district board members say they are thrilled about the reopening. They've seen closures in their district, as well as trends around the state and country. The only school operating in the Aleutian Region School District this year is the Yakov E. Netsvitov School in Atka. Mark Snigaroff is a school district board member there. So happy we got another school. In fact, we're going to be the only school in the district. 
The Nikolsky School closed down in 2009 because of low enrollment, but families decided to stay on the island and homeschool their children. With its Unanga community, Nikolsky is reputed to be one of the oldest continuously occupied villages in the world. Mike Hanley is the superintendent of the Aleutian Region School District. He says he worked closely with local families to gauge their interest in reopening the public school. They're longtime Nikolsky families. That is their home, and now their kids are school-aged. The search for a Nikolsky school teacher is underway. Meanwhile, Hanley is working with the state to ensure all paperwork is in place for a smooth reopening this August. In Unalaska, I'm Sophia Stewart-Rossi. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Drummond Woodsum, a full-service law firm whose nationally recognized tribal nations practice provides services to tribal nations and their enterprises and to companies that do business with tribes across the country. More at dwmlaw.com. Does your club, institution, or other group need custom-branded apparel? A wide variety of T-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom-printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Author, historian, and Haskell Indian Nations University professor, Dr. Daniel Wildcat has advocated about the importance of indigenous science and ways of thinking for decades. In his newest book on indigenuity, Learning the Lessons of Mother Earth, he presents indigenous knowledge through a nature-culture nexus as a way to create a path away from climate change and other looming environmental threats. Meanwhile, his research brainchild at Haskell was awarded $20 million from the National Science Foundation. The project supports collaboration among indigenous and Western science and knowledge keepers on building resiliency in the face of climate change. And that is just what Dan's been busy with lately. Advocating and promoting indigenous knowledge is his life's work, and he's recognized as a leader in the field. That's why he's our January Native in the Spotlight. Did you go to Haskell? Do you know Dr. Dan Wildcat? You can join our conversation with him this hour by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Lawrence, Kansas, is Dr. Daniel Wildcat. He's a professor at Haskell Indian Nations University, and he is a Yuchi member of the Muscogee Nation of Oklahoma. Hello, Dan. Welcome back to NAC. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Dr. Wildcat, are you there? I can't hear anything, folks, on my end. How about now? Can you hear There me? we go. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Hey, listen, thank you for having me, Sean. I'm really uh, looking forward to our discussion today. 
Wonderful, wonderful, Dan. Well, as I mentioned when we talked before the show, I was once a Haskell student myself, and although I didn't have an opportunity to take any of your courses, all of my friends who did spoke very highly of you then and continue to do so today. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I tell you, that's about the the most important review you can get is 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 from students. And, uh, uh, you know, my life's work, as you summed up so very well, has been about working with young and maybe sometimes not so young indigenous students who um, really want to find a way to draw on our own intellectual, spiritual, and cultural traditions to help us address some of the really pressing modern problems we face that we are entangled in. But in all truth, we had little role in creating. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great segue into our first topic, because we, we've got a lot to cover. But let's start with your new book. And uh, tell our listeners, what exactly is indigenuity, and how did that term come about? Well, I first heard the term uh, in, in our campus about, it's been somewhere between 15, 18 years ago. Uh, I had a student who was taking a class for me, Curtis Kakaba, a member of the Ka Nation, and he wrote a paper for me, and he used the term indigenuity. He said, I think what we've been talking about in your class is indigenous ingenuity, indigenuity. And I, I loved it. I talked to him afterwards. I said, hey, where'd you get that? And he said, well, Julia Goodfox, one of our other faculty, was teaching a course, and they were talking about ways to use the settler's language to kind of capture important ideas that we were trying to uh, explore in our studies and our work today. And he said they came up with this idea of indigenuity, just collapsing those two words into one. I really loved it. Uh, I found out that some other people apparently at the very same time were doing the same thing. So I don't claim, you know, that that was my, you know, word. Um, I don't know quite if anyone knows exactly where it came from, but it seemed to be there was something in the air Mm -hmm. in the early, that first couple of years of, of, the 21st century, post 2000, that people were thinking, you know, we've got to figure out how we can apply our ancient wisdom to solve modern problems. And I think that's where indigenuity came from. It was just part of what was in the ether, you know, floating around and people were were thinking. And I I became fascinated with the term and have uh, spent the last almost two decades now trying to unpack that. What does that mean? Well, indigenuity, it's a really catchy term, and and a major theme of your book is that Western science uh, just doesn't acknowledge the value of indigenous knowledge and uh, regarding these decisions about ecological sustainability in this disregard. So, I mean, what would it look like if the indigenous knowledge that you describe in the book were incorporated by key decision makers or even in global circles? Yeah. Well, let's first of all, let's let's kind of unpack it. So the way I define indigenuity, there are at least four key elements to it. The first part is it is a decidedly non-anthropocentric way of thinking. By that, I mean it's not human-centered. In most of our tribal traditions, we have this rich oral tradition, ceremonial tradition, even we honor it in our languages, that we saw plants, animals, 
the elf features features of the earth itself as persons possessing a personhood. They weren't persons like human persons, but they had the possession of personhood, and they could thereby be our teachers if we paid attention to them. I think that's the first important point. So indigenuity relies on really paying attention to our different than human relatives and seeing what they can teach us about how we can live better, richer, more full lives. So that's the first point. That That's a tremendous leap from a Western view that looks as nature is full of resources to our traditions that look as nature full of relatives. So that's point one. Point two, it leads you to a fascinating realization about right and wrong, about ethics, about morality. Indigenous traditions are so powerful because they even frame the choices that we make in the context of not just about our so-called inalienable rights. Don't get me wrong. Indigenous people have great traditions of honoring the uniqueness of each human being, of the gifts we've been given, and the rights or liberty we have to realize those. But I think most of our traditions are much like my Zoyaha or my Yuchi tradition. We always emphasize corresponding to those rights, inalienable responsibilities. Mm. And here's what I like to point out. When we talk in, in a world full of resources, we spend all of our time arguing about who has the right to use that resource. If we adopted an indigenous-framed worldview, we would no longer have that discussion. We'd be talking about how do we live responsibly and respectfully with relatives. Think of that, just that one shift, how powerful that would be in shaping choices we would make today. And so I think th those are, are key points. The last one I would make is we all know that there's this great effort to kind of, um, of what we call greenwashing of sustainability uh, by many of the corporations that have done the most, some of the most damage to the planet. I think we get around that by saying, hey, you know what we need to focus on? How can we make choices that promote systems of life enhancement? That ought to be our goal. How okay. do we create more vibrant ecological communities that humans are just one small part of? Now, Dan, this That's all kind sounds of what ingenuity is about. Right. Okay. And it all sounds wonderful, uh, very philosophical in a sense. And, and in the book, you use the Haskell wetlands as one example yes. of how tribes and institutions have implemented indigenuity. Uh, what made that project so successful and how has it been molded through indigenuity? Yeah. So here's what's happened at Haskell. You're probably familiar, Sean. I think I may have talked about this at some early, on some earlier program years ago. But, you know, Haskell students, alumni, some of the faculty led a fight for almost two decades to stop something called the South Lawrence Traffic Way that was going to be built right across the southern part of the Haskell campus through the Wakarusa wetlands, which are on our campus. The part of the wetlands actually goes right onto our campus. We lost that fight to protect the wetlands um, about 10 years ago. 
And uh, a lot of people said, oh, good, we don't have to listen to those Indians complaining anymore about us, you know, destroying the wetlands. Well, unfortunately, they were wrong, because what we realized is with the incredible impact that that the highway was built, by the way, the traffic way was built. um, And but that reminded us that we still had a responsibility to help those wetlands recover from that incredible uh, uh, man-made, you know, intrusion into that wetlands ecology. So uh, what we've done uh, under the leadership of our, one of our faculty members, Bridget Chapin, have used students to really try to reimagine how we bring the wetlands back to life by not bringing bulldozers in to rearrange land or try to move soil here or make a place wet here, but rather by saying, let's play, pay close attention to the place and see what it will tell us about what we can do to promote bringing that wetlands back to life without a heavy mechanical human hand. And in other words, let let the wetlands, the plants, the animals, the water speak to us. And students have been engaged in that. And it has been a phenomenal exercise in what I would describe as indigenuity. We're letting the plants, the animals, the wildlife of the wetlands tell us what should we be trying to do to enhance that area. So it's been fascinating. Are you a Haskell student? If so, do you remember the Haskell wetlands walking along that south side of campus, a very spiritual, very profound part of the campus? And we're visiting with Dr. Dan Wildcat today, long-term faculty member there at Haskell, and he's talking about the wetlands, as well as other aspects of his new book on indigenuity. Give us a call. Join the conversation. 1-800-99-NATIVE. Ozempic is one of the new drugs that have real promise for treating type 2 diabetes. Unfortunately, it's also popular among people who just want to lose weight. We'll discuss new breakthroughs in diabetes therapeutics and some of the barriers keeping them from patients. That's on the next Native America Calling. Pursuing a degree in higher education is attainable, and with a scholarship from Native Forward Scholars Fund, it is more affordable. From aerospace to veterinary medicine, as the largest direct scholarship provider to Native students in the U.S., Native Forward has empowered over 22,000 students from over 500 tribes in all 50 states in pursuit of their undergraduate, graduate, and professional degrees. Info and applications at nativeforward.org, who support this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. We're talking with Dr. Daniel Wildcat today about his work in environmental and indigenous science advocacy and his long and storied career at Haskell Indian Nations University. He's our January Native in the Spotlight, and you're more than welcome to join us with your comments and questions. Talk to Dan Wildcat right now at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Dan, another compelling term uh, from your new book on indigenuity, learning the lessons of Mother Earth, is this whole concept of what you refer to as nature culture nexus or NCN. Explain for our listeners that term. 
Yeah, uh, so that is really heavily influenced by my dear friend, my mentor, my, uh, you know, co-author and power in place, uh, Indian education in America, uh, the late, great Vine Deloria Jr. You know, I, I'm a student of Vine's, uh, um, and he, um, th this idea kind of starts running through his work beginning with God is Red, which, by the way, we just got through celebrating the 50th anniversary, right? Uh, 2023, yeah. can you believe it? And you wrote years. an afterword chapter, I believe, for the for the I, anniversary. I did. I, I did. Honored to be asked to do that, which, not surprisingly to anyone, if you read my afterword, it's about the impact of that book on environmental thinking and how I think indigenous people should embrace many of the ideas. So it's really kind of pulling out Vine's ideas, and I would explain it this way, the nature-culture nexus. It's the idea that for indigenous peoples, our cultures were literally emergent out of this close symbiotic relationship we had to places. That's what Vine called the power of places and the influence of that power on our unique peoples and our expressions of culture. So that's what I wanted to get at. And I wanted to find a term. And so the term I came up with was this nature culture nexus, the symbiotic interrelationship among indigenous peoples with their culture and the place that they called home, the seascape, the desert, the high, high prairie, the wetlands, the coastlands, those places that indigenous people consider home were the places that where their identities, their culture emerged. And so for us, it is inconceivable that one could separate culture from nature. Again, which I think is one of the miseducative ideas we have to overcome today. Uh, I grew up in a time when they taught about, you know, Man versus nature, or is it culture or is it nature? And it occurred on me, occurred to me early on in my formal education, that really doesn't make much sense when you're talking to native people because we see our culture as emergent out of our symbiotic relationship, mm -hmm. the nature culture nexus that we are a part of. That's a really good point. And and Dan the book is written primarily to address ecological challenges collectively. I see it like as a call yes, to action correct. to governments, corporations, and other institutions. Yeah. But what about individually? Can and should people also embrace indigenuity independently? Absolutely, they should. And, and I think there's a big debate right now, and I'm very aware of it, between the people who argue, you know, we can't really address climate change, global climate change, unless we have large structural institutional changes. And there are the other people, very committed people, who are arguing, well, if we depend on the large institutions and structures to change, it's going to be too late. So they're advocating, you know, you start local. I don't think it's an either or. I think we try to do both. And that means in our own life. So in my household, I mean, it's it's the little small things. And people say, oh, well, that's not going to make a difference. Well, if everyone did it, it could make a difference. Be mindful about your lights, being mindful about your water usage, being mm -hmm. mindful about driving and, and maybe being a little more intentional about how you, you know, use a, a fossil fuel vehicle, how, you know, 
how okay. you are using water. All of those choices have an impact. And I think it's it's really important for people to take that on at a very personal level. Well, Dan, here's a, a challenge that I see because uh, the book is also, if I may say so, it's targeted to primarily a non-Indigenous audience. But yeah. I see Indigenous people, we ourselves are often or at times guilty of ignoring the nature oh. culture nexus ourselves. And I mean, I'll use myself as an example. I own more than one car. I've got a house that's probably a little bigger than it needs to be. I make unnecessary trips on airplanes, oh. as do most of my colleagues. And, and then sadly, there's some days I spend more time on the Internet than I do with my family. So how do we as indigenous people also come to terms with our own shortcomings in this regard? Well, I think we've got to be self-critical. And, and I, so here and I'm glad you asked this question, Sean, because I'd like to I'd like to present it this way or respond this way. I'd say, look, no one should ever take this holier than thou position. I mean, we are, if you're living in the United States today, you are entangled in a lot of systems that you depend on. And, and you know, a lot of indigenous people are living in large urban areas now. It would literally be unsafe for them to try to walk someplace, given the network of freeways and traffic ways and the level of traffic. I mean, we've kind of created a world where a lot of times we are entangled in things that ultimately are damaging. We have cars, you know, we use cars. Yeah, a lot of us use, you know, our IT and computers and laptops and our so-called smartphones. Uh, I think we just have to develop a mindfulness about that and we try to change. So I've tried to change the way I use IT devices um, and and to quite frankly use them less than mm -hmm. just getting into that, you know, we all know this, right? The algorithms that all of the people who are on the internet develop are designed to keep you <laughs> online, to keep your they attention, they, that eye candy, and you can't turn it off and you can't turn it away. I think we, if you're aware of that, then you say, you know what? I'm going to be in charge. I'm not going to let the machine control me. I'm going to re reset that relationship. Okay. Well, I'm inspired listening to you, and I will try harder uh, in my own life to, to, to uh, live the life of indigenuity. And again, the book is titled On Indigenuity, Learning the Lessons of Mother Earth by Dr. Daniel R. Wildcat. If you've got any questions so far for Dr. Wildcat, if you're a Haskell student, maybe you took a course with Dr. Wildcat, give us a call. Give him a shout out, 1-800-996-2848. And Dan, let's go ahead now and talk uh, about some of your new environmental work and the yes. National Science Foundation that's supporting Haskell with the Rising Voices Changing Costs Hub Project. You're part of this. What yeah. will the center do? Yeah, it's the Rising Voices Changing Coast. I'm sorry, uh, Changing Coast. Convergent Science Hub. No, uh, Rising Voices Changing Coast Convergent Science Hub. So that program is called the COPE Program. Uh, coastlines and peoples. The Rising Voices Changing Coast Hub is a part of the COPE program, Coastlines and Peoples. And um, we were just, I've done a lot of work with a lot of scientists and, and scientific institutions, agencies, as you know, for 25 years now. 
and um, about, it's been 11, 12 years now, um, some people that I knew said, hey, we're going to create this thing called Rising Voices uh, at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. And the idea was, let's get some of our traditional knowledge holders, our on-the-ground knowledge holders, together with some of the best climate scientists in the world. And we started meeting, having an annual meeting, bringing really, I mean, some of the best climate modelers, climate scientists in the world together to meet people who lived in areas that were dramatically experiencing climate change and who understood, had their own understanding about what was happening in that place they called home. And we, out of that relationship, when this Coastlines and Peoples proposal came uh, to develop a convergent science, in a nutshell, convergent science is, think of it as, as a nod to interdisciplinary science, the notion that we can't solve certain problems unless we get the social worker, the social scientist, the physical scientist, the biologist, the ecologist, yes, maybe even the 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 business uh person the economist together all together you know to address problems that's what convergent science is and we thought gee let's put together a proposal to uh, do convergent science and the convergence that we're going to promote is dominant you know science uh, a university trained science and scientists with traditional knowledge holders, indigenous knowledge holders, local knowledge holders, and that's going to be our convergence, bringing these two together. We put together a proposal, could not have done it. Haskell could have never done this on, on its own. In fact, this was brought up to me uh, by one of our dear partners who's uh, sadly, uh, you know, just this last year started her journey to the stars, the late Dr. Uh, Heather Lazarus at NCAR. She called me up when she saw the RFP and she said, Dan, I think well, this is what we've been talking about at Rising Voices. Let's put together a proposal for our national hub to study indigenous coastal peoples and how they are responding to being affected by global climate change. I mm -hmm. said, perfect, let's do it. And then she laid the bombshell on me. She said, Dan, we think Haskell should be the lead institution. And um, I took a deep deep swallow and a deep <laughs> breath and thought, oh my God, $20 million. We don't have the infrastructure to do this. And, and how could we do this? And they were insistent. They said, Dan, it needs to be an indigenous institution leading this, not the national science for atmospheric research, by the way, which is one of our, our major partners. Mm -hmm. Long story short, we took the dive. I talked to people at Haskell. We decided we would work with the Haskell Foundation, our um, you know nonprofit, uh, you know, uh, supporter of of Haskell, and um, to let them kind of be the pass through for the money that we would receive and operate, be our fiscal agent for this grant. They agreed to do that, and I tell you, it has been nothing but you know, a roller coaster of let's get this up and going. Let's, let's, let's get everything set up. And uh, we're halfway through the second year and things are really coming together. And uh, we got partners all over the United States, major scientific partners. It is a really big project 
We've got sites in Alaska, Hawaii, the Gulf Coast of the United States, and Puerto Rico. These mm. are the three areas where we're working and all being directed by myself and administrated by people in the Haskell Foundation, a great project director. And, and students, and, then uh, are, are students involved in the research as well? Yes. Yes, they are. We've got some, we do a summer internship program led by Haskell alum, Dr. Paulette Blanchard. Um, and she does a summer internship program. And we're just getting finally up and running an academic year internship program. I had a couple of interns I worked with last semester, and now we're trying to get it set up for this semester. So yes, we have incredible student opportunities, and not just for Haskell students, but for students from tribal colleges and majority institutions across the United States, we encourage them to apply for that summer internship experience. Now, this all sounds really exciting. And um, you mentioned a partnership with the Haskell Foundation. And I know you also partnered with the foundation on an effort to establish a Haskell Center of Justice, which would refurbish yeah, Hiawatha well, Hall, well, one of the historic buildings on campus. How is that project coming along? It, slowly but surely. Now, you, I don't have to tell you, Sean, or our listeners, that sometimes the wheels of uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs moves slow. All of our facilities are under, you know, the fall under the purview and the responsibility of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And so uh, we've been working to get money in the pipeline. We do have money now, and we are actively now, we've, we've had drawings done of re-envisioning this re-emergence, this, this recreation of Hiawatha, which, by the way, Sean, it's, it has stood unused now for four decades. This beautiful mm. historic building just boarded up. We've, we've got it a new roof on it. We've had it completely decontaminated interior, torn out, rear set up. So now we can go in. We've got drawings, and it is going to be a beautiful a uh, place where we can do small conferences, symposiums, host community programs, a center for students, but around that, all that that theme to honor the namesake, Hiawatha, of justice. And I tell you, if if uh, I don't think there's any more important topic we could discuss today, you know, um, than the questions about justice in, right. in the world we live in. So, right. uh, yeah, it is it is coming along slowly but surely. Okay. Well, what really excites me about that project in Hiawatha Hall is Hiawatha Hall is just one of quite a few historic landmarks there Absolutely. on campus. And um, when that building is restored and if that momentum can just continue and some of these other landmarks and buildings there at Haskell can be restored. Wow. What could that mean? What would that look like there on campus? It'd just be amazing. You know, I, and I got to say this, Sean, and, and anyone who's been to our campus will know what I mean. Um, you know, I, I was fortunate to do a visiting um, uh, professorship at, Dartmouth College. It would have been, I think it was the fall of 13. I was at Dartmouth. And, uh, you know, sometimes you have to leave a place to come back and kind of see it again. And I remember coming back from Dartmouth, stepping onto our campus and seeing 
poor Hiawatha Hall boarded up, shut mm. up. This beautiful building, it's on the, the, the natural, uh, National uh, Historic Res uh, uh, Registry. The registry, yeah. yeah. Built in yeah, 1898. It, yes, exactly. It, it is a historic landmark building on our campus. The center of our campus, a bell tower. And the, the whole story about the bell. The bell disappeared. We don't know what happened to the bell, but <laughs> my my notion was, you know, when I when I saw that, I came back from Dartmouth with all these historic, beautiful old buildings at Dartmouth College. I thought, you know, our campus is every bit as beautiful. Yes. Yes. But we've got to restore those those places like our historic football stadium, like Hiawatha Hall, like Tecumseh Hall. And, you know, if we can take care of those historic, you know, buildings and facilities, the way we're trying to restore our wetlands, we could have a literally one of the most beautiful campuses in the United States. Another short break, and we'll be right back with Dr. Dan Wildcat. Support for this program provided by Vision Maker Media, who envisions a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. Nurturing the next generation of storytellers with courage, generosity, creativity, respect, and commitment. 45 plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org whose slogan is, Together We Are Vision Makers. You've got to tune to Native America Calling, your daily one-hour talk show about important indigenous issues and topics. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Dr. Daniel Wildcat is this month's Native in the Spotlight. He's one of Native America's leaders in environmental advocacy. He also heads the Environmental Research Studies Program at Haskell Indian Nations University. Join today's discussion and tell us what you've learned from Dr. Wildcat. You're also welcome to ask him a question. We're at 1-800-996-2848. And we've got a caller on the line now. His name is Clifton. He's listening to KUNM Radio in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hello, Clifton. What would you like to ask Dr. Wildcat? Oh, well, I guess I want to ask him uh, whether or not he approves of my little things. I, I was so heartened to hear him talking about being mindful, intentional, and about how if everybody did all the little things, like I know I have to be better about turning off all my lights, <clears throat> but I, I do want to share that, you know, I compost coffee grounds here at the office rather than throwing them into waste. I throw them in my garden. Uh, and then uh, at home when my dog tracks in dirt and sheds on the floor, I sweep all that up and put it in the compost. Uh, when I have to run water enough that it gets hot, uh, I use a bucket, and then I save that cold water and flush my toilet with it. I only put out mm -hmm. my trash barrel and my recycle barrel when they're absolutely full to save that one little extra pump on the gas pedal of the, <laughs> okay. the trash truck. And so, yeah, anyway, thank you. Uh, uh, I, I think those are all the kinds of things you're talking about, uh, Mr. Wildcat. Yeah, wow, Clifton, you you've got it going on there. You <laughs> definitely are are really being mindful of the environment. Uh, Dan, that must inspire you when you hear folks like Clifton that are composting and even saving that little bit of extra sink water to flush their toilets. It does, and and I I want to thank you, Clifton, for that. And you know, I think there's another there's again here's something to think about in terms of our traditions. You know, you know, most of us 
in our cultural traditions, we don't learn our lessons by sitting down and hearing a lecture. You learn by observing. Um, there's something called embodied knowledge, and that is, I think, something we need to really embrace today. Kind of be that change you want to see and embody that. And you're doing that, Clifton, and, and I thank you for it. And I just wish ever if everyone would do that, then we could start thinking about those institutional, larger institutional changes and, and maybe focus on that. But thank you for that, for, for being mindful in your relationship to the rest of creation. You bet. Dan, let's talk more about Haskell and let's talk about Haskell students. You're approaching 40 years now at the school. You've been teaching and listening to young Native people on a daily basis. How have you seen Native people and our ways of thinking change over that time? I think today, uh, young uh, Native people are much more uh, sort of aware of and sensitive to the fact that we really need to look to our own traditions, be creative, be imaginative in how we can express, you know, our own culture, our own wisdom, our, our own spirituality in, in within our tribal traditions. And, and, and I think that that mindfulness is something that has evolved. And so I see many young people coming into my classrooms today whose tribe has a language program. Mm-hmm. And maybe they almost lost their language. But now they're revitalizing. And I had a person just before this, I came on radio today, who we were talking in class. After class, he comes up to me, Dr. Wildcat, I want to show you our language app. So he had a, an app on his phone for, uh, oh my gosh, I can't remember, Winnebago or Omaha, uh, uh, his tribe, and and was showing that to me and said, I'm, I'm trying to learn my language employing this app. Well, again, that's indigenuity. That's using this technology not to, you know, buy more things that we don't need, uh, but use that technology to restore something that often we've had, you know, taken away from us, or at least threatened, you know, uh, in terms of remaining a vibrant language, a vi- vibrant culture. So I, I think a lot of our students are coming, growing up now, seeing their own nations, their communities, really starting to try to figure out how do we do this? How do we, you know, maintain cultures, language, identity. So it sounds like this this awareness, this mindfulness, this sensitivity, yes. it's very much being driven at the community level. I think it is. I, I mean, I think that's the hopeful part. Now, we all know we have we have problems in, in our community. Sometimes we have problems in our, our tribal governments. But, you know, I think still some of the most hopeful activities are going on on the ground with people organizing, coming together to try to make positive change and do so by saying, you know, we've got some old ways we might re-explore. How could we 
make those fit this modern world and use some of that wisdom and embodied knowledge. So, yes, I think that is going on now and it's powerful and we should do everything we can to encourage that. So I'll put in one plug here real quickly. I think that's what indigenizing education is about. I think one of the things we need to do is expand our notion of what indigenous education is to go outside the classroom, outside education institutions, and really support community-based pro, uh, programs and and learning opportunities, hands-on stuff where people can mm -hmm. learn while they're addressing real problems. Well, I, we've got another caller on the line, but but you raise an interesting point, Dan, and I want to explore that further with regard to, to you know, making education more indigenous mindful. And uh, let's talk about just the evolution of Haskell, because you've been there now long enough to see it. I mean, it started as an institute and then it was a junior college. Now it's an accredited four year university. How pleased are you with that progress? It's been slow and it's because it's hard work, but I think we are making progress. I think, you know, I'm so proud of my colleagues in environmental science and in um, indigenous and American Indian studies. I mean, across campus, our elementary education program, I think everyone is wrestling with this issue. In the belly of the beast, American higher education, probably one of the most Western informed parts of the formal education structure in the United States, higher education. How do we indigenize that? And, and I think it's, it's not always easy, but I see my colleagues trying to do that. And, and I feel pretty good about where we're at now. And I think we've got a lot of hard work ahead, ahead of us, but I, I could envision in uh, say a decade from now, having some degree programs that look very different than what we currently offer. Let's take another caller, Chanupa, listening in Pine Ridge, South Dakota on Keeley Radio. Hello, Chanupa. Hey, thank you for taking this call from me very short at here at Keeley Radio. And uh, Fisher Professor, Professor Wildcat, many years ago, I met a couple of twins, Tommy and Tammy, okay? They hang. They they held on to the traditional turtle dance, long time ago when I met them, and these were twins, and they spoke very highly of the ancient culture back then. Like we Lakotas, we have what they say, They said to us that we must go back to listen to our elders to get this culture. And for what you're contributing as this professor doing things, I did performance with them in Haskell many years ago. My, my uh, late uncle, Malvin Martin, he graduated from Haskell in mechanics. So this is a great topic you bring out. And uh, if you're familiar with Tommy and Tammy Wildcat, they're a twin that's still out there. Maybe they're still doing the same thing. And he is one remarkable flute player in the traditional culture. Thank you, and that's what I wanted to contribute to today's show. And thank you, Sean, for always being there in short note. Hokahe. Thank you, Chanupa. Dan, uh, the twin, the Wildcat twins, are those relatives of yours? Yeah, Sanlay. Uh, I think Tommy and Tammy are, are uh, uh, Cherokee, the Cherokee Wildcat. So, you know, uh, 
uh, relatives in that grand indigenous way, but uh, not, you know, in within my family line. But we've got, I know we've got wildcats that are Cherokee, Seminole. I know they're up there in the Great Lakes. There are some wildcats too. And again, um, that kind of, isn't that a great embodiment of what we were talking about, that symbiotic mm -hmm. relationship between nature and culture, that we would take clan identification and even names from some of our different than human relatives. And I think that's a great way to show, you know, how closely we honored those relationships, that kinship, really. It really is. Yeah. Dan, I imagine you've had opportunities to teach at other schools, maybe larger, yes. better funded universities. What's kept you at Haskell all these years? The students, the students. I mean, where else in the United States are you going to find over 100 and federally recognized tribes, uh, people from the Arctic Circle to the, you know, tip of, of Florida to, you know, the Great Lakes, the, you know, Northeast, uh, Pacific Coast. Uh, it's, it, there's no place in the world like Haskell. Haskell, nine months out of the year, is the largest intertribal learning community in the world. We've got, and, and that has what has kept me there. If you're committed like I am to indigenous education, a place like Haskell is a good place to do that work and start the heavy lifting and, and the, you know, have hopefully in some way, maybe small, some little kind of positive influence on those students that are going to go back and, and help to indigenize their own communities and, and traditions uh, or honor their traditions and use those to help us solve very modern problems. So uh, that's what's kept me there. It's really been the students. Um, I love teaching there. I couldn't imagine being a full-time faculty member anywhere else. Now, Dan, there's, there is debate in this country right now over the value of higher education. Natives, non-natives alike, yes. they're asking questions like, hey, is it worth the time? Is it worth yes. the financial investment that I have to make to go to college to be successful? What's your take on that? Uh, yeah, it's worth the time depending on what your goals are. I mean, I'm I'm good. I don't think college is for everyone. I mean, I I've got to be honest with you. My grandson uh, Luca uh, tried um, college during the height of COVID. It was not a good time. Uh, trying to take courses online and after a semester of just not not feeling it. It felt like it wasn't him. You know, I remember talking to him and, and, you know, he said, well, I'm thinking I'd like to maybe do something like, you know, in, in the building trades, like maybe, you know, an electrician, maybe a plumber. And, you know, I got to tell you, jokingly, John, I said, amen, someone in the family is going to really make some money. <laughs> and, and, and I said, and you know what? He on his own went out, he found a local plumbing, uh, uh, contractor took him on as an apprentice. He worked here in this area about a year, started making good money. He got that lure of the Southwest and uh, mm. he's now living outside Phoenix <laughs> in uh, Gilbert, Arizona. And uh, he literally had a job in Gilbert as a plumber 
before he even got there, hired. And he's making good money. He's enjoying it, enjoying it. And, you know, we'd all be really knee deep in it if we didn't have plumbers, wouldn't we? And yeah. so I, 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 he's to me is the embodiment of there are people who maybe you know, we need, still need skilled craftsmen, tradesmen, uh, builders, designers. And so I, I don't think that college is for everyone. And you just need to find out what is it you want to do. And if it's something you want to do where college can prepare you and you can be enthusiastic about it, go for it. But it, I don't believe it's for everyone. And then how do we do that? How, how do young people find out what they want to do? Because that was the big question I had. When I was at Haskell, that was a question I asked myself. And it took me a really long time in life to figure out what I was good at and what I had a passion for. What do you recommend mm -hmm. for people to, to yeah. just, you know, plan their lives and, and get those goals yeah, set? Yeah, yeah. You know what? Take your time. Take your time. I mean, I kind of feel like, and I know parents aren't going to like me hearing this. Oh, we don't want our kids going around and trying all this and trying <laughs> that. But, you know, I, I really think, okay, it sounds like a platitude, right? But sometimes platitudes aren't just glib. They're, they're not, they, sometimes the reason something becomes a platitude is because there's a certain grain of, of truth there. And I think one of those truths is, you know, the best job you can ever have is that job where it doesn't really feel like work. It's where your passion is. It's where your heart is. And for some people, it's working with their hands. For some people, it's using their, their brain. For some people, it's being very physically active. And I think we've got to really give young people a, a little more freedom to kind of explore and figure out what is your passion? You know, mm -hmm. um, where where can you find that place? I it's it's what I tell people when they ask me about, you know, to introduce myself. I will often tell them, well, I've got the greatest job in the world because when I go to work, it doesn't feel like work to me. Yeah, yeah. That's it. That's the key, Dan. And, and you've uh, you've cracked that nut. You figured it out. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. And again, just uh, just keep inspiring us. Okay. You bet. Thank you for having me, Sean. And and uh, I hope people will kind of keep an eye out for um, on indigenuity, learning the lessons of Mother Earth. All right. Well, we're going to have to wrap up the show now. Please tune in again tomorrow for a conversation about new drugs designed to treat diabetes, but are popular weight loss remedies. We'll ask whether you should try them or whether you can even get them. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. This program is supported by AmeriCorps VISTA. You can kickstart your career by joining thousands of AmeriCorps members in the VISTA program serving to alleviate poverty. AmeriCorps members help organizations make change right in their own community. A service opportunity that fits your ambition can be found at AmeriCorps.gov VISTA today. That's A-M-E-R-I-C-O-R-P-S dot G-O-V slash V-I-S-T-A. 
Happy New Year. Now is a great time to start the new habit that will keep you healthy. Eat right, get plenty of exercise, enough sleep are the key to health lifestyle. Talk with your health care provider about change you can make to the new year be on your best side. For more information, contact your Indian health care provider or visit healthcare.gov. A message from a Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.